1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: And I wish Magnus, I wish he'd also talked about the Norse gods because that would have been pretty funny.
3: Yeah, when are we getting our Kane Chronicles, Percy Jackson, Magnus Chase crossover? You know... And welcome back to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant.
2: And I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. Unfortunately, not an Egyptologist.
3: <laughs> Emphasis on the ish this time. <laughs> so today we'll be talking about the first two of the Kane Chronicles Percy Jackson crossover stories, which came out once a year with, I think it was Mark of Athena House of Hades and Blood of Olympus.
2: One thing I found kind of perplexing though is they all like take place after Blood of Olympus.
3: Yeah, I, I didn't even consider this really until I I looked back at Son of Sobek a couple years ago maybe and I noticed that Percy was somehow making references to both the, the Titan army and the Doors of Death. And I was like, wait, when did this book come
2: out? I do feel like the references are pretty subtle and then like in the third one... It's like, oh yeah, we just did this. We just defeated Gaia. And he like references it very explicitly.
3: Yeah. Like in the second story, there's references to like Frank and the Argo 2. And you're like, okay, yeah.
2: As per usual, if you have not read this short story, uh, here is a quick breakdown of the plot before we get into it. The first one we're reading today, Son of Sobek," opens on Carter Kane chasing down a giant crocodile-type monster near Camp Half-Blood. And um, as he's starting to do battle, Percy Jackson emerges from the water and also begins battling this crocodile, and they have a bit of a turf war over whose monster this is and who's going to kill it ultimately they end up fighting the beast together realizing each of them has something weird going on with their magic powers and they're using different terminologies and it's very strange and ultimately defeat the monster and part ways to be continued
3: yeah (laughs) what were your general feelings on this story
2: oh yeah oh i didn't say this by the way i have never read these short stories before as per usual but i've also never read the cane Chronicle.
3: Yeah, so this must have been (laughs) an an adventure.
2: I mean, you know, it's written in a way where it's pretty easy to follow. I was interested in the way the Egypt mythology world worked. It was interesting to see all of the ways the magic was kind of done, and also how he kind of decided to start reconciling the Egypt world with the Greek world. I don't know how much stuff he does with that in the Cain Chronicles series. Yeah, and I thought it was pretty fun. I enjoyed it. The, I like Carter and Percy's dynamic.
3: mm mm-hmm. <laughs> um, So this short story is in Carter's point of view. You haven't read these books, like the Kane Chronicles books. So you don't know that Like most of the Kane Chronicles are like narrated into a microphone, technically.
2: Mm. But
3: this is not the case in this short story. He's just talking.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's in, it's in first person, which... Given our discussion about the third to first person was also really interesting.
3: Yeah, I'd much prefer his first person. What would you say are the differences between Carter and Percy's narration?
2: My first note is this voice feels very similar to Percy's, so not much. There's like subtle differences. I don't think Carter makes as many jokes as Percy does. So I I feel like Carter's humor is like a little more refined Mm -hmm. than like the absolute bottom of the barrel that Percy goes for most of the time.
3: he carries himself with more of like a it's almost like he's more sure of himself most of the time mm.
2: i would I would agree with that
3: <laughs> carter's characterization in this like i keep coming back to the fact that when he's fighting the the crocodile carter refers to it as my monster and the fact that percy comes away from that interaction first thought is though this must be a son of Ares because like only an Ares kid would be like, actually, I saw that monster first, so it's mine.
2: <laughs> yeah, it is interesting that that was his first guess.
3: Yeah, like he's just—it seems like he's very uh, does things individually. Which, like, I—I I should also clarify, I have not reread the Kane Chronicles books ever. I read them when they first came out, and that was it. So I really don't mm. remember them very well. I remember like plot things and a couple character things about Carter and Sadie, but generally, I'm coming to this sort of blind. Also, another part of Carter's narration that i really enjoyed was getting to see this world from the egyptian series's point of view i i first realized this while carter was describing what he does like who he is he's not like a child of anyone yeah. he says that he's basically like the police but for <laughs> monsters <laughs> and gods who aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing within the mythological world and i was like that's a, a very different concept from what we've got <laughs> going on in the yeah. other half of the world <laughs>
2: Yeah. And each of them has like a really hard time reconciling what the other one is and does to their worldview because they're so different, which I thought was funny.
3: Yeah. Um, And there's also like Carter talks very casually about going to Egypt. Like it's no big deal going back. (laughs) No worries. Yeah, It's like, oh, Sadie is back in Egypt and like, don't worry about it. But yeah, so we see Carter fighting this crocodile, who my only note on the crocodile is that it it's noted that it has gold jewelry around its massive neck. And my first thought was Vector the Crocodile from Sonic the Hedgehog, which you're not going to understand, but someone out there will. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Carter ends up getting swallowed whole and is eventually saved by Percy. And... Percy and Carter just like immediately do not like each other. It's like just an immediately hostile situation.
2: It's just like a turf war. They're just like what are you doing fighting my monster?
3: But it was like at first I was reading it and I was like wow, but, like Carter is right to just be like cuz Carter's immediate impression of Percy is this guy's a jerk. Like <laughs> <laughs> but then I was I was trying to read it imagining Percy's perspective on this situation because he speaks so bluntly in a sort of like this is just another day on the job for me and you're in my way kind of way and I was like I feel like he could be nicer (laughs) (laughs) but then I was thinking about it and I was like imagining running into a like quote-unquote half-blood so close to camp but who definitely isn't a camper because you don't know him It's like probably immediately ringing some alarms. Like this is something that he does need to figure out once he figures out the crocodile thing. And so that's probably part of why he's sort of like standoffish with Carter. But at the same time, I think Percy just enjoys sassing people sometimes.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he doesn't have the nickname for sassy for nothing.
3: Don't call him that. (laughs) (laughs) It's 2023. (laughs)
2: Anyway, so we get an outside look at Percy Jackson from somebody who has no idea who this kid is and has also never heard of him. I feel like a lot of the people we see describing him at least, like, have a vague idea of his reputation.
3: I like getting to see Percy from an outside point of view because this is kind of what I was craving from the second series and that we get sort of in flashes where it's like, Mm. this is kind of the way that Percy talks when we're not in his head and we don't realize it because we're in his head. Especially in, I'm thinking, like, early Percy Jackson books. But it's just kind of the way that Percy comes across when he's just not here for whatever's going on at the at the moment, except from an outside yeah. point of view.
2: He's just kind of over it. and He's like, ugh.
3: Yeah, which that all changes the second that Carter <laughs> accidentally punches him like across the earth.
2: Percy Jackson needs to be humbled sometimes.
3: <laughs> but like only for a second because Percy immediately comes up swinging.
2: Yeah, he kind of accidentally punches Percy like he's annoyed at him, but he had- primed a spell and like forgot that he'd primed the spell but he basically uses a mage hand to slap him out of the water
3: exactly so percy and carter because we know percy he's not gonna just take that he gets up and sends a, a wall of water at Carter and then tries to kill him and so they they end up fighting which leads to one of my favorite lines in this short story which is Carter saying I wanted to explain that I'd made a mistake I wasn't really his enemy but I needed all of my concentration just to keep from getting sliced down the middle camper boy which is called what he's calling Percy right now camper boy (laughs) however had no trouble talking (laughs) <laughs> and then the rest of this moment is Percy just asking him question after question while Carter's like trying not to die
2: <laughs> that's a great Percy moment
3: yeah he's basically questioning Carter about like are you uh, uh, some kind of monster you called the crocodile my monster is it your pet like is it yeah. are you a spirit from the doors of death that's escaped <laughs> and they fight until uh, eventually Percy ends up slashing Carter's wrist With his sword and at the same time Carter casts some kind of rope spell and basically just ties Percy down. And I just, I loved this moment of Percy realizing that Carter is obviously not human because his sword actually hurt him. But at the same time he's like, this is just some kid. (laughs) Hang on. (laughs) Sitting there in the water after trying to kill him and then gets up and bandages Carter's wound. Yeah. But I think at this point Percy's like, okay, this is obviously another demigod. We need to focus on this crocodile and then we'll deal with each other later but it's here that we get another interaction that I really like Carter asks Percy for his name and Percy says I'm not sure I should tell you names can be dangerous and Carter thinks he was right of course names held power and then talks about how the names have power thing sort of manifests in the Egyptian world Mm -hmm. and I want to talk about something that was originally pointed out to me by uh, a tumblr mutual Lily aka of swords and pens who pointed out that you know we've only ever heard this kind of names have power thing in reference to ancient beings with enormous power like gods and monsters and titans and like if you speak their name you are calling on that power in some way Mm. and just the idea of percy saying that about himself Mm. we've never heard anyone say anything like that about just like demigods
2: that's true
3: Like there's no reason that we've seen that names would be dangerous between just people. And Lily also drew a line between this and how Percy is called Perseus by the gods and the monsters and whether like being called your true name holds any kind of power and what this means about how Percy thinks of his own power or his where he is at this point.
2: Mm. And I think it's also fun because I'm still tracking what I've called the apotheosis of Percy Jackson.
3: It's just such a strange thing for him to say. To say, like, oh, I don't know if I should tell you names can be dangerous. Like, why? Why would yeah. it be dangerous? Because, like, in in Carter's world, it clearly makes sense to him. Like, he says uh, that Sadie had learned his secret name and that it caused him all sorts of anxiety. And that, like, a name yeah. can be used by a magician. But it's like, in Percy's world, that none of that means anything. It's just invoking a god is dangerous because they might i don't know <laughs> i don't think we've ever seen a god respond to their name
2: But it is interesting because a lot of the purpose of these short stories is to show how related and interconnected the mythologies and how their magics work are mm-hmm. so names having power in egyptian mythology i feel like is almost a justification of names having power in greek mythology which I think just comes from the fact that, like, for example, a lot of people... And it's not just ancient Greeks, too. Like A lot of cultures have taboos around words for the death gods or even saying death. Mm-hmm. But you would also always use epithets often for the other gods. So well, you can kind of see that maybe as an extension of that. Where there's, like, a ritualization in the name. And I think for mortals, the only power in a name is, like, the power of legacy. And Percy does have a name with some amount of legacy and power because he has an ancient name of Perseus.
3: And I think also at this point, like, he does have a a well-known name within the Greek mythology side of the world, and that it can be dangerous for his name to be out there. You know, I'm thinking of uh, moments like when he introduces himself to the cheerleaders at the beginning of Battle of the Labyrinth, and he says mm-hmm. that his name is Percy Jackson, and they're like, oh, Percy, we've been waiting for you. Like, it's the kind of, if he gives up his name, it is a dangerous name, to give up because you know in a sense if he says his name out loud out in the real world where there where he knows there are monsters around Mm. it could summon monsters to him and so maybe giving his name out like that isn't something he is willing to do especially in this kind of situation But I think this is also tied up in a larger theme that I found in this book, which was just the power of words, because we have that moment Mm. where the only way that Carter is able to save himself at the beginning is by summoning a word of power, which ends up being the fist that punches Percy. (laughs) And then at the end, having literally like Percy has to speak Carter's name to summon him.
2: Yeah, that's true. I found it interesting as well, the crossover between the Egyptian and the Greek words that we get into later in this sort of series of three. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's also not just about the words themselves, but also like who speaks which words.
3: I had a lot of questions about where the Greek and Egyptian worlds came together.
2: Do you want a history lecture? (laughs) A little
3: bit. I might be requesting a history (laughs) lecture for the first time in my life.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Everything you've learned about Greek and Roman history for me has been against your will up until this (laughs) point.
3: (laughs) I just spent the whole thing being like, if I knew more about the places where the Greek and Egyptian worlds met, I could analyze the Greek and Egyptian worlds coming together here from that angle, but I don't Mm. know enough. And then luckily Annabeth went and like gave me a small history lesson in the second story. Mm. But like, I don't know if there's more to it.
2: (laughs) I mean, I think she gives a pretty good spark notes, but... The Mediterranean, in, in general, has always been a place where there's a lot of cross-cultural interactions. So even in like the Bronze Age, we have a lot of examples of like correspondences, even between like the pharaohs of Egypt and like the king of Cyprus and like a bunch of the other rulers of the times. Um, because I mean, if you look at a map, right, the Mediterranean is essentially like one big pond around which there were a ton of really influential and really great civilizations. So yeah, there's always all this contact, but politically when Egypt kind of came into the fold was it was first actually kind of annexed by the Persian Empire now in the 300s BC Philip of Macedon who was the father of Alexander the Great and he um, actually went on a campaign where he ended up conquering and kind of unifying a lot of Greece um, into a single rule under him and then when his son Alexander came of age Um, He gave him a small loan of the Kingdom of Greece, and Alexander the Great used that small loan to pull himself up by the bootstraps and (laughs) conquer, basically, the entire existing Persian Empire. But uh, one of the funny things about Alexander the Great that is relevant to this is that he hated his dad so much, and he was also obsessed with, like, oracles and prophecy and so whenever he would go somewhere, he, and he would hear there was, like, an oracle or some prophecy or something, he'd, like, go, and he'd seek it out. And it, like, hit a point where everybody knew. So by the time he got to Egypt, which was one of the last territories he sort of conquered, the priests are all like, Okay, we don't want to piss this man off, and we know he's got a thing for being called the son of a god. So they greeted him with an honorific that was, like, preserved for, like, people blessed by this god. And he was like, wait, what did you just call me? And they were like, huh? I just, I don't know. I just, it's, I I guess I felt compelled to say it because, because you're the son of one of our gods. And he was like, damn straight. (laughs) (laughs) And founded Alexandria for the 76th time. He named 76 cities after himself, y'all. Insane. (laughs) Insane. But basically what Alexander the Great kind of did was he sort of, when he took over the Persian Empire, he basically just put his own satraps in place and kind of maintained their own system of government. And when he did the same to Egypt, he also did the same thing where he installed one of his generals, Ptolemy, to be, well, I think initially he installed someone else to be in charge of Egypt, but um, he basically installed a figurehead to collect taxes and pay tribute to him. Now, Alexander the Great, though, died under mysterious circumstances suspiciously young not long after that and what basically happened was a period of time in which his three biggest generals duked it out for the empire and got divvied up because he didn't really have heirs it got divvied up between his top three generals ptolemy was the one who took over egypt and eventually what ptolemy decides to do is instead of having a figurehead installed that maintained egyptian customs he established his own dynasty And he essentially absorbed himself into the Egyptian system, not as a territory of another kingdom, but as a kingdom in in its own right.
3: Mm.
2: I was thinking I was going to talk about this in the second story, but...
3: Yeah, but it's a useful lens to look at this first story through, because it's like our first connection between the Egyptian and Greek world in these books. Mm. So... Continuing through this story, Percy and Carter end up deciding to work together and chase this uh, giant crocodile into a cul-de-sac. And as they're going, Percy and Carter uh, talk a little bit about each of their worlds. And this is where both of them realize that they are coming from, you know, a world where there are Greek gods and a world where there are Egyptian gods. And there's a specific moment that I liked, which was when Carter mentions Egyptian gods It says that Percy stops in his tracks, and then he stared at me, and I could swear the air between us turned electric. A voice very deep Mm -hmm. in my mind said, shut up, don't tell him anymore. And it was like moments like this that I liked in this story where it was like you got to see that version of Percy for a second. And then I think there's another moment at the very end of the story where like Percy gets very serious for a second, and then... He smiles and and Carter's like and then all of a sudden he looked like a normal teenage boy and it was kind of unnerving. <laughs> <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. There's a couple moments also where I feel like you feel like these characters are starting to have a bit of a schism kind of like with the Greek and Roman sides of the gods. Where there's something inherently dangerous and weird and the metaphor that Carter uses at the end of the story I really like of like potassium and water where alone they're both stable and non-danger and very non-dangerous but the second you mix them they create a huge explosion.
3: Yeah this is something I was thinking a lot about during this story was how familiar this situation must feel to Percy at the end when he starts thinking to himself that like this might be someone else trying to bring the Greek and Egyptian worlds together. Hmm. Like, that must feel very uncomfortable to him.
2: Especially someone else who may or may not be mysteriously back from the dead.
3: Yeah, like, while he's trying to piece everything together here, it's probably feeling more and more dangerous to him. While Carter Mm -hmm. is sort of starting to, like, ease into trusting Percy, I feel like from Percy's perspective, this situation must be feeling more and more stressful. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that moment where he where he hears Carter say, like, Egyptian gods for the first time, he's it's probably, like, that's part of why he stops in his tracks, because it's like, this can't be happening again. Yeah. Especially so soon after Blood of Olympus, because I, I don't think we actually get what time of year this is.
2: I'm assuming summer, because there's kids outside with, like, water balloons.
3: Oh, yeah. So it's probably, like, immediately after.
2: <laughs> Poor Percy.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so... To try and stop this giant crocodile, they decide on a plan, well they decide on a couple plans that kind of all go wrong, but eventually the plan becomes Percy creates a hurricane while Carter tries to unclasp the giant necklace this uh, crocodile is wearing because they realize that the necklace is what's making it a monster, like if they take the necklace off it will be a regular crocodile. and. As they're doing this, something interesting happens, which is that Percy starts not losing control of the hurricane, but just losing it completely, which I don't think we've actually seen before. Percy, like, doing mm. something with that amount of power and not being able to keep it up. Like, usually it would be he goes too far and loses control of it, or like, like I don't think we've seen too many times where yeah. he tries to do something and then runs out of energy.
2: Mm. But a line that I flagged during that part was Carter was n- when he's noticing that Percy seems to be flagging is like, which he wasn't surprised by, because he'd never seen anybody wield that much power.
3: Right. But we've actually seen Percy create a hurricane before. I'm thinking specifically of the hurricane from The Last Olympian,
2: mm, where he yeah. like, he
3: created lightning with that, like he was controlling the weather with that one.
2: <laughs> yeah, he, yeah.
3: So like, this shouldn't actually be that big of a deal for Percy considering what we've seen him do ourselves. And it reminded me of, there's a line in Blood of Olympus where I think it's during the Olympias scene that someone mentions that how easily Percy's been getting winded after Tartarus. Like, his mm. lungs are literally just messed up from the air in Tartarus, and he also mm. was described as being skinnier, and is just, like, physically still messed up from what happened in Tartarus.
2: Yeah. Maybe he should have gone to Asclepius and gotten an inhaler. <laughs>
3: You know what? Yeah. (laughs) So that was kind of what I attributed this to, was that even if Percy, we've learned, especially over the course of the last series, that Percy definitely has the power to hold this hurricane. He physically can't keep stuff like this up anymore.
2: Yeah, that is interesting. Because I think, like, Annabeth losing her knife and, like, Daedalus's laptop as well. It, it's, like, a level of permanence I think we're just not used to in this series. Like, by nature, Percy can never lose Riptide. So it makes sense to me that he would also have a kind of permanent thing taken away from him a little bit by Tartarus. Or at the very least that he needs to, like, work really hard to overcome.
3: Mm-hmm. It makes me want to see him overcome it. Chalice of the gods, here we come. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Childs of the Gods, Percy gets an inhaler.
3: There's so many things that I'm relying on Childs of the Gods for and it's like a 200 page book.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you should make a list of them and just like have it as a checklist and we'll be like, let's check on Phoebe's checklist.
3: <laughs> I should. I'm going to make a bingo card. Who thinks Phoebe <gasps> wants should... out of
2: this book. No, like you're joking, but we should, we should make our predictions as bingo cards.
3: Yeah, we'll make two different bingo cards and see who wins. <laughs>
2: yeah, we should, no, we'll... we should each make a real bingo card and then a joke bingo card. Okay. Oh, I'm so excited. Every Listeners, if you have bingo cards, you want to submit, submit them.
3: Yeah, if there are squares that we should be including on our bingo cards.
2: <laughs> we can print up a bunch and see who gets bingo!
3: So Percy gets an inhaler, is in the middle, because obviously that's happening. That's yeah. our freebie. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. So the way this story ends up wrapping up is they get the necklace off of the crocodile, which turns into a baby crocodile that Carter takes home with him. And Percy and Carter... Decide together over uh, cheeseburgers that they never want to see each other again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What a heartwarming tale.
3: But if this really is someone trying to bring the Greek and Egyptian worlds together, they probably will have to. And should have some way of getting in touch with each other, just in case. And so Percy assumes that Carter's going to write uh, his phone number on his hand, which was cute. But actually, what Carter does is give him like a summoning spell in his hand, so that if Percy ever says Carter's name out loud, Carter will appear to him.
2: <laughs> Names have power. Yep. Oh, d- we need to beat, don't we?
3: I mean, I like the like weird glowing eye, the glowing eye of Horace that's on Percy's hand mm. now.
2: That's a good one. I enjoyed the, like, little hippopotamus, but, like, the wax figurine of it.
3: <laughs> yeah. Because
2: <laughs> it also reminds me of, um, we find a lot of these, like, tiny little figurines in ancient, and particularly, like, Bronze Age archaeology, which is also on one of my favorite, like, archaeological reveals lists, just because a bunch of people were finding these just being, like, they must be religious, because you literally get taught when you study archaeology when in doubt, it's religious. Like, kind of <laughs> as a joke, but really not, not really. And then it, it's it's one of those, I don't know if any of you saw, like, that magnificent thread that was going around Twitter for a while of, like, basically, like, finally having women archaeologists taking looks at things. And one of them was, like, toys for the kids. And it was, like, oh. So, like, a little a little hippopotamus toy.
3: Cute. I used to love William at the Met, the little blue hippo. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about this guy
2: oh yeah that yeah william i want william on my bead he looks like he's what is he made of faience uh yes haha
3: i when we went to the met during our egypt unit i got a small william er eraser i made a a tiny little house for inside of a toy mailbox that i still have he has a bed in there he has posters on his wall
2: oh he's got a whole situation he's got a whole setup yeah
3: i have many williams (laughs) in my room
2: (laughs) Fiance is cool. It's notoriously used really well by the Egyptians, but it's um, essentially like a cool glass melting technique to create, like colored glass. Very fun. Mm. Anyway. So let's move on to the staff
3: of Serapis. Serapis? I don't know how we're I'm to saying Serapis. This. Okay. Well, this one is in third person from Annabeth's perspective. I wish it was first person from Annabeth's perspective. I know.
2: that'd
3: be fun. <laughs> but Annabeth is on her way back from a... Uh, internship interview that she doesn't think she did very well on. She's heading up to Percy's apartment while Percy is off seeing a movie, so I guess to go hang out with Sally.
2: <laughs> she's going to take the F train there, Phoebe. I
3: know. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, we're going to have to have one of these conversations again.
2: <laughs> so she's she's going to go hang out with Percy uptown, but as she's going to the train station, there's this monster that's got, like, a a shell on the back of it, and it's got two heads, one of a wolf and one of a lion. She ends up getting chased by the monster onto a different train, the A train into Brooklyn, and uh, when it stops the next stop, or the first stop in Brooklyn, a certain Sadie Kane gets on the train with a dog thing, which as it turns out is the third head that this monster has been looking for. Sadie and Annabeth realize that this is the pet of a greco-egyptian god that's being kind of raised by a mysterious sorcerer dude in rockaway beach and they're trying to prevent him from taking full power and getting his staff and everything and they figure out neither of them can do damage using their own powers but if they switch powers they can actually if, if annabeth uses egyptian magic and sadie uses greek magic they can actually start doing some damage and ultimately defeat this guy, realizing that something's going on where someone's trying to fuse Greek and Egyptian magic. And there's apparently this thing called the Crown of Ptolemy that's supposed to grant, grant immortality. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. For those who aren't aware, the F train does not go to the Upper East Side. <laughs> but I think it's. She had to. He thought she needed to take the F because he actually wanted to get her on the Brooklyn bound A which isn't at the same station. Right, yeah. Because she ends up having to run into that train. My main grievance with this part is not because the A does go to Rockaway Beach. But, like, how long do we think they spent on this train in this short story, Phoebe? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I
3: was like, this is a really long battle. I mean, maybe this is the reason that Annabeth was, like, so worn out by the end of this fight.
2: Yeah, because they, they were fighting for, like, an hour 15. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway,
3: I actually really liked this short story. When I think of these short stories, I always only think of Son of Sobek because I I feel like there was a bigger deal made out of that one when it first came out. And then like these last two, no one really talked about when they came out. But I really liked this one. I might have liked this one more than the first one.
2: I definitely like this one more than the first one heinous public transit aside
3: the other thing that happens on uh the trains though is that annabeth gets to meet sadie yeah and it's a very different interaction because annabeth immediately feels like she's looking at a younger version of herself
2: Hmm. but she also like what set off at observation though which i thought was really interesting is like she sees her like blue eyes that remind her of a child of zeus yeah so at first i thought she was thinking about thalia Mm mm-hmm And I also think it's, I I think later in the story also, they're talking about Percy and Carter and realize that Sadie and Percy are very similar in terms of their like temperament and disposition and the way they kind of interact with things. Mm -hmm. And then Carter and Annabeth are more similar. So I thought it was interesting that they got paired with kind of their opposite, but also that Sadie and Annabeth definitely get along way better than Carter and Percy. Mm Mm-hmm.
3: I also, from this opening interaction between them, noted the fact that Annabeth already knows Carter's name, and so Percy must have, like, written it down for her to read or something Mm. and told her the whole story because she knows uh, Sadie starts saying things about Egyptian gods. She's like, oh, this is exactly what Percy was talking about. But Mm. Sadie has no idea of what Annabeth's talking about. Like, Carter chose not to tell his sister anything.
2: I'm thinking in terms of Percy and Annabeth, that tracks for me that like percy would tell annabeth what happened to him and annabeth in the in the same situation wouldn't necessarily tell percy
3: i think she'd probably tell him why wouldn't she tell him
2: (laughs) i think she wouldn't tell him if she'd promised not to i also think she wouldn't tell him necessarily if she didn't think it was going to come back that being said, I think Percy is left with the distinct impression that this is not over at the end of the first one.
3: I think especially Percy having just come off of Heroes of Olympus, it's like this is something that he definitely feels like he needs to talk to Annabeth about because it it probably feels to him like the start of mm-hmm. something similar to what he went through in Heroes of Olympus and so is like, yeah. I assume that he told Annabeth and he probably told Chiron and is just trying to make sure that everyone is aware that this is something that's going on. And for some reason, Carter went home and was like, well, (laughs) that's the end of that.
2: I can see it, though, because Carter hasn't had, like, a Greek-Roman schism to deal with that's, like, destroying everything, so.
3: Yeah, so Carter walks away from it thinking not even to tell his sister
2: the other thing was it was an Egyptian monster so Carter aside from Percy didn't actually see anything that didn't add up versus Percy's like not only are there magicians roaming around but there's also <laughs> non- Greek or Roman monsters roaming around on Long Island what's going on so I think it Percy was definitely a little more out of his element in that story than Carter was. Mm-hmm. We got some interesting Annabeth, like, self-acknowledgement moments in this story, which I enjoyed. Yeah. The first one being, she realizes pretty quickly that she's having a hard time fighting this monster. So she says she does what she does when she's, you know, outmatched. She acknowledges that whenever she's outmatched, she resorts, she she falls back on talking. So it's kind of fun to see that thought process play out a little bit. I think with Percy, it's more of an automatic reflex, versus for her, she, like, Okay, I'm going to try fighting this the old-fashioned way. Not working. Okay, changing my strategy.
3: Right. It's more of a conscious decision. Like, it's a tactical decision rather than, I guess, an instinctual one. Like, it is for Percy.
2: Yeah. And we also get a fun uh, crossover element where Annabeth picks up Sadie's wand. Mm Mm-hmm. And it transforms into a celestial bronze dagger. Right. And Sadie, I think, later explains it by saying it's a magic item. They just kind of do what they want. But again, I kind of like building out this expanded lore of like how this all kind of fits together in the world building. Because in the first story as well, there's a reference to the fact that as Carter is like stabbing the um, son of Sobek... Like, it's starting to turn into sand, and I was like, oh, sand is kind of like dust when they're killing the monster. It's sort of a similar vibe. And there's also a lot in both of these stories about the mist and the duat. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Mm-hmm. And it made me wonder what would happen if Carter or Sadie picked up Riptide.
3: Um, I think specifically with the wand, the image that I was struck with was the the pain that it causes and then it appearing and her just staring at this thing that she lost. It felt like such a, like, it was like a ghost showed up. <laughs> I know. Especially because it's like, that's the, that's the cursed blade. The titular cursed blade. Yeah. <laughs> it's not titular in any way.
2: <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's the, the prophetic cursed blade. <laughs> um, and it's also
3: in this scene that we get Annabeth seeing the duot for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I loved this moment. Specifically the, um, there was one paragraph that I marked. While Annabeth's looking at it, it says, Annabeth was usually a confident person. Whenever she dealt with regular mortals, she carried a smug certainty that she possessed secret knowledge. She understood the world of gods and monsters. Mortals didn't have a clue. Even with other demigods, Annabeth was almost always the most seasoned veteran. She'd done more than most heroes had ever dreamed of, and she'd survived. Now, looking at the shifting curtain of colors, Annabeth felt like a six-year-old kid again, just learning how terrible and dangerous her world really was. Um, Mm -hmm. And then she sits down in the sand and spends the next, like, two pages trying to (laughs) process what she's looking at. And I just, the description of what it looks like is so cool. I really liked these two pages.
2: And I really liked how the conversation it sparked about the mist. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that this actually all brought to my brain was, again, that moment in Tartarus where, like, it's like a curtain slips and they're seeing it being way worse And I was sitting there and I was like, is this the version of the world that, like, Rachel sees? Hmm. Like, is this what it means to see beyond the mist? Because if we're thinking about them as the same thing, then it's not just, like, seeing monsters. It's, like, being able to peer beyond this, like, curtain into, like, a place where you can, like, see magical energy. And the thing is also, what supports my hypothesis is how Rachel described being able to navigate the labyrinth. So I just thought that was interesting that that all kind of felt like it gelled for me. It was an interesting food for thought of like how many curtains and veils there are, because we know that like Percy can see most of the things that mortals can't see, but he also can't see all of the things. And it's also like, how is that all subconsciously interacting with and affecting all of these characters, like we saw with Tartarus?
3: I was glad also that, Uh, Annabeth was asking all of the questions that I was also asking Mm. because when I read the first story I had all of these things in my head that was that were like you know chaos comes up and I was like is chaos in the Egyptian world the same thing as chaos in the Greek world and like I'm also thinking what happens when a demigod learns magic and combines both worlds and where did they meet historically? And she was just like, let me ask and answer all of these questions for you, Phoebe. <laughs> and I really appreciated that.
2: Yeah, she's, she's really considerate, you know.
3: So uh, all of this happens when they get to a building where uh, Serapis Serapis is, he's trying to summon his staff to him. Which is the three-headed creature. And
2: he's like creating this vortex and building something. And I had this moment where I was like, out of nowhere, I don't know where it came from. I was like, Lighthouse of Alexandria? And then like much later it's confirmed and I was like, ooh. The reason why that would be a guess is because it was, like, the seventh wonder of the world for a while. And actually, they have found the ruins of it. Hmm. For a while, they thought it was lost, and it was kind of mysterious. What, it was, like, kind of a mystery what happened, but what they think was a, an earthquake. Although it actually lasted until, like, I think the earthquake that sent it into the sea was, like, in 1300 AD. So it, it lasted for, like... Almost 2,000 years. That's pretty crazy. Mm. Anywho, he's like building a lighthouse for some reason.
3: Well, he says that the, his main goal, he's he's trying to become, to use the lighthouse as a beacon for both Greek mm. and Egyptian worlds and so that he can basically replace them both as like his own entity in the modern world.
2: Yeah, he talks about how his plan basically is he's gonna attract these gods and then in- essentially incorporate them into his own essence, like, absorb them, basically.
3: Yeah, and there's this, like, weird, creepy moment where Annabeth, looking at him, can see, like, features in his face of different Greek gods. And, like, his smile looks mm-hmm. sort of like Athena's for a second.
2: I think that's also maybe a little bit of a reference to Serapis as, like, a figure in the ancient world. Because he, he talks a lot about how his origin is sort of a mashup of Greek and Egyptian gods gods and religious practices and he credits his inception to ptolemy but what's really interesting about serapis is there is debate over whether or not he was actually present as like a cult figure in egyptian times that actually might have predated ptolemy but not by very much probably and what's also really interesting about him is that he really caught on as a cultic figure in the rest of the greco-roman world like not just egypt but he is conflated with a lot of different gods as a result. Like, he's sort of, like, this weird Rorschach test of a god of, like, who you identify him with most. So we get a lot of examples of him taking over for Osiris that he mentions in the story. But, like, replacing Osiris, like I think I mentioned, Osiris was one of the big cults in the Greco-Roman world. It was particularly big in ancient Rome. So, like, him kind of superseding Osiris makes sense in that context. But at the same time, because of that, he's also now equated with Hades, the Greek death gods. But he's also equated with, like, Asclepius, and with even later on, like, Helios and Zeus. But I think reading up on this, what really struck me, it was something that we talked a little bit about in our Mark of Athena episode, but that I didn't, I think, didn't make the final cut, where the cult of Mithras for a while was sort of thought of as a potential alternative to christianity as far as like a centralized roman religion candidate and i feel like looking through this i was getting similar vibes of like this idea of a deity that could kind of encompass all things in a polytheistic system from looking at the cult of serapis and all of this stuff Mm -hmm. he's kind of like he's sort of turning into this all-encompassing god that can kind of do whatever you want him to do
3: yeah yeah What else happens in the short story? There are a couple of like small things in this short story that feel huge. Like in this fight scene, Athena actually helps her, like puts her cap in her backpack. And like, yeah, we also get this idea of when Annabeth, Annabeth realizes that the way to defeat this guy is to kill one of the animals on his staff Mm. specifically the one that represents the future because one of them is the past one of them is the present one of them is the future Mm -hmm. and she really thinks over this partially because it looks like a cute little dog (laughs)
2: yeah a black lab a
3: cute black lab and the other part of it is because she's afraid that by killing it she's going to be killing her own future and like this is an idea that sticks with her all the way to the end of the short story she's still thinking to herself and trying to reassure herself that she didn't destroy her future right there
2: it, it reminded me also, because I, I think in the story at this point, they've acknowledged the three-headed, like, scepter is meant to be a reference to Cerberus, both in, like, ancient iconography and in this story. And it reminded me of that scene with Cerberus in The Lightning Thief. Yeah, I was also thinking of it. Because there's that moment where Percy notices that she, just, like, wipes a tear away after they have to leave Cerberus behind with his little deflated ball.
3: And it's also mentioned at one point that she had a dog back home
2: Mm. my fun little easter egg that i picked up is part of the way they are able to defeat him is by instead of for example sadie using egyptian words of power to try and bind him she's gonna use greek words to scare him and make him think she's like weaving all these spells and stuff to distract him so there's a line where it's like annabeth's gonna teach her some greek and little fun easter egg for me and me alone is (laughs) the first thing she says it should be which are the first three words of the Iliad. <laughs> and then I thought it was the whole first line of the Iliad, which it, I'll read it out loud and you'll see why. So I was like, oh, is that the entire first line of the Iliad? And she thinks Achleos, which is Achilles' is algae. That's funny. But then I looked back and it was like an entire separate sentence about the sea. And I was like, oh.
3: Yeah, I wonder if that one comes from something else. I could see, like, both of these lines just being her pulling from her favorite books.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, to be honest, like, if you, like, put a gun to my head and was like, Emily, start reciting ancient Greek. (laughs) Like, that's the, that would be the one.
3: I love how she just sits there, like, wincing, listening to (laughs) Sadie try and say all of it. And Sadie just gives up and starts, like, saying any Greek word that she can think of.
2: Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> Alpha, beta, gamma, euros. <laughs> which, if you ever go to Greece, they're not gyros; they're euros. Not to be confused with euros, which is the currency in Greece. Those that's pronounced evro, evros. I
3: can guarantee you that Sadie said gyros here.
2: <laughs> I know.
3: Um, So at the end of the story, Sadie and Annabeth kind of come to the same conclusion of like, this is probably going to, we're going to see each other again, most likely. And so we should exchange contacts. And they exchange phone numbers like normal people.
2: Which is a joke that Annabeth makes. (laughs) Where she's just like, Percy's not gonna use the weird thing, the weird magic thing that your brother gave him. Let's just get each other, let's just add each other on Insta. (laughs) And then we get my favorite line in this entire short story, which is Annabeth's like, oh, but like, you shouldn't actually contact me that much. Like, demigods and phones don't get along. And Sadie's like, weird. And then she jokingly says, I shouldn't send you any funny face selfies on Instagram.
3: Yeah, which is a a thing that people definitely do on Instagram.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, people definitely do that if you just replace instagram with snapchat it would have made sense been fine.
3: <laughs> <laughs> or like i shouldn't add you on snapchat or i shouldn't add you on instagram like it's just, there's oh so many God. other ways that you could phrase this <laughs> i really hope that annabeth does have an instagram though i really hope that even though she's not supposed to be using her cell phone she does have an instagram
2: <laughs> no yeah she's got like a secret instagram though like a private secret instagram that's got like followers and she just like posts pictures of things from the Met on it like she's a museum poster (laughs) and then like little architecture things being like look at these cornices
3: yeah and so from here Annabeth kind of has a little bit of an existential moment worried that she did just destroy her future once again and then it seems like gives up on meeting up with Percy after the the movie and just decides to head home to Camp Half-Blood so what I took from that was that this was a very mentally taxing moment for her and that she yeah. she is coming away with this feeling like there's there her whole worldview has shifted in a way that is really freaking her out.
2: Yeah. And I think she's like already kind of in a weird transitional moment. Like we start the story with her like having to get an internship and like all of this other stuff going on where she's like in a bad place with that, like not feeling like super confident about it.
3: Yeah. And like thinking about where she was post- House of Hades, because she's another one of those <laughs> didn't get a point of view mm-hmm. chapter in Blood of Olympus, so mm-hmm. we don't totally know what, where she's at uh, characters. Mm-hmm. It feels like she, I mean, we already know that she was already sort of in an unstable place based on her conversation with Piper in Blood of Olympus. And this can't be helping. So add that to the list of things I expect to be addressed in Chalice of the Gods. A, a lot riding on that.
2: <laughs> I, honestly, that's the free space. It's just trauma.
3: But to wrap this one up, do you have a bead? I guess the F
2: train sign. But <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I think my bead is the, the little lighthouse of Alexandria.
3: Mm. I'll have to look up what that's supposed to look like. It's
2: pretty cool. Like, the description in the book is pretty accurate of, like, the three different levels of it. Okay.
3: I kind of want my bead to be almost incomprehensible so that it looks sort of like what the duot is Mm. when Annabeth is looking at it. But I don't know how I'm going to draw that. But that's what I want it to be is to just feel like you look at the bead and you're like, what am I looking at right now?
2: Like an abstract painting. Yeah.
3: Thank you all for listening to this episode of Monster Donut. Next time we'll, we will be reading The Crown of Ptolemy, which is the third of these Cain uh, Chronicles Percy Jackson short stories. And then I think the next episode after that is going to be Chalice of the Gods. Woo! So yeah, get, if you want to send us things that we should include in our bingo, <laughs> you can send that to podcast at gmail.com and you can find us on social media, uh, on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at PJOPod. Yeah. What else? Um, we have. A, uh, if you, if you feel like supporting us, um, you can support us monetarily by uh, donating to our coffee or Ko-fi, however you say it, which is linked in our link tree. Or if you'd prefer to do it non monetarily, you can rate us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us right now
2: really appreciate it and helps us out a lot if you do.
3: Yeah. I also appreciate it if you actually listen to these like bumpers at the end of every episode. (laughs) If you actually make it to the literal end of every episode, really appreciate that. You're a real one. I feel like I should be like one of those, uh, it's like on YouTube where people are like, if you made it all the way to the end of the video, drop an apple emoji in the comments below.
2: Yeah, drop an apple emoji in the comments In below. the review
3: section, if you listened all the way here. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone looking for actual reviews would just be like, what is this? Okay, that's all. Bye, everybody.
2: Bye. <laughs>